Our text this morning is Psalm 116, if you will turn there in your Bibles with me. As you're turning there, you'll see that the psalm is titled, I Love the Lord, and that will be the focus of this sermon this morning, what is required in loving the Lord. But now, as you've opened there in the scriptures, I'll read, please follow along, we'll pray, and then begin into the scriptures together. Psalm 116 reads, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered the stress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let's bow together. Father, please open these scriptures unto our hearts, apply them, and make the truth of your word real to us that we might live in light of the truth of who you are, the work that you've done in Christ, his blood applied, and the spirit working in us. Father, I pray that the things that we don't know that you would teach us, that the things that we don't have that you would give to us, and the things that we are not yet, you would make us. Lord, we pray that the spirit would be with us in this time, teaching us and making us wise unto you. Ask all this for the glory of Christ, in his name, amen. So as you look at the text this morning, Psalm 116 begins with the first four words, I love the Lord. Now if you look at the title of the psalm, you'll see that where they get that from is the first verse. And so when there isn't a proper title given to a psalm, they typically just take it from the first line of the psalm. But you look at this, I love the Lord, that's a praise, that's thanks, Right? That's uplifting to the Lord, that which is true about him. And so if I ask you, why does the psalmist say, I love the Lord? Why does the psalmist say, I love the Lord? He answers that within the verses that we find here. But actually, there's more context in that. There's more background than that. Psalms 113 to Psalms 118 are actually psalms of praise. They would have been sung during the feast of the Passover. They would have been sung after they had celebrated that which God had done, taking the people of God, the Jews, out of the land of Egypt, taking them out from under Pharaoh's oppression, taking them out uh, across the Red Sea, taking them out through the desert and into the Promised Land. These six psalms are joined together. They lock together in praise and salvation. They unify that which should be the voice of every Christian through every generation, remembering that which God has done. 
And so when you look at it, look at Psalm 113. It says, praise the Lord, the first line. And then the last line, praise the Lord. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And Psalm 115 ends, praise the Lord. Psalm 116, uh, <laughs> it says that I love the Lord in the first line, and then it finishes, praise the Lord. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, ends, praise the Lord. And then Psalm 118, that famous psalm that says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see the praise being lifted up in these psalms? But you might have caught that I didn't mention Psalm 114. Well, Psalm 114 is recounting the history of God delivering his people out of the captivity under Pharaoh. And it's him taking them to the Red Sea. And whenever they are facing utter destruction, it's him freeing them through parting the Red Sea, giving them a path where there was none, and then providing that which they needed in the desert by the water from the rock when they were wandering in the desert, waiting for the Lord to take them to the final fulfillment of his promises. And so that is the context of Psalm 116. And knowing that will help you see why the psalmist says, I love the Lord. Now, whenever you think about your individual application, when you start thinking, what does this psalm have to do with me? We'll unpack that as we go through. But you see, all men need to love the Lord. All men need to love the Lord. Whether they are able is a different question, but all men need to love the Lord. So what is required for all men to love the Lord? At least three things. More than that, but at least three things. To love the Lord first, God must love that man. For a man to love the Lord, God must love that man. Secondly, to love the Lord, what that means is that the man must love what is true about God. It's not loving to love what is untrue about God. You must love truth and the truth that God is and that he represents. And then lastly, a man must confess his love to the Lord, about the Lord, before others, but specifically to the Lord. So as we look at that first point, God must first love a man for a man to love the Lord. This requires that a man understands his need of the Lord. And his need isn't partial. His need is total. If you went to Isaiah 53, it would say, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way. And then if you went to Romans chapter 4, it would say, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. These are statements that say every man has the same need, the total need, the whole need of that which only God can provide. And if you want to see that need drawn out in this psalm, look at verse 1 and verse 2. At the end of verse 1, it says, My voice and my pleas for mercy. The psalmist has a need. Look at, psalm, uh, look at verse 3 of Psalm 116. It says, The snares of death have encompassed me, fully surrounded in my need. No way out. No escape. The pangs of Sheol. Sheol is the place of death, the place of utter destruction, the place of final resting when a man has met his end and he can do no more for himself in this life. It is a place of total need, a place where mercy is needed. And it goes on, I suffered anguish and distress. Have you come to points in your life where you said there is nothing I can do for myself? I am at the mercy of the Lord. Not just temporal issues, not just sicknesses, not just financial hardships, not just parenting struggles, but have you come to the point where you said, God, how do I even worship you? Lord, what could I ever do for you for all that I need you to do for me? That is the place of the heart, the frame of the heart of this psalmist. 
Look at verse 6, and he says, the Lord preserves the simple. There's nothing about this psalmist, this man, that deserves the attention of the Lord. There's nothing about a beggar on the street that deserves the attention of a man who's providing for his family and working. And yet, isn't it good? Isn't it merciful? Isn't it gracious that someone stops and they give a meal to a man who needs it? And they give money to a man who needs it? And they help clean up a man who needs cleaned up? Isn't that merciful? This is the need of the psalmist in its total. And this is the need of your heart. This is the need of your soul so that you might enjoy the privilege of the salvation that God offers to mankind through Christ. But it's not just that man has a total need, but God condescends to meet that need. We don't raise ourselves up to God. We don't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. But instead, God comes down to us in mercy and grace and the richness and the fullness of the inheritance of Christ. And when God comes down, if you were to go to Psalm 65, verse 4, it says, Blessed is the man, God, who you choose and bring near. God does the work that we need him to do so we might have rest in him. We might have salvation from him. And whenever you see that, doesn't the New Testament say that Christ died for us while we were still yet sinners? Christ died for us while we were unacceptable to the Lord. So we might be made acceptable to him, doing the work for us when we had total need. This is the gospel. This is the work that God does. So what must a man have? What is required that he love the Lord? He has to recognize his need of the Lord and call out to the Lord in that need. And when he's wise enough to do that, it's because the Lord made him wise enough to know his need and to call out to the only one who could provide the solution to his problems. And God is faithful to do so. But what is this like? This is like if you were... A homeowner, and let's say that there is a mayor who's oppressing people in the town, and he's wrongly foreclosing on houses, and he's wrongly taking people to court, and he's wrongly abusing them and their families, and sending them out into the streets, and taking all the money and the goods that they possess. What does that man do in his possession, uh, in, in this situation? He might write a letter to the president in desperation, the highest man that he could go to, and he writes a letter to the president in his desperation, thinking, that man has the authority to resolve my problems. Can the one who wrote the letter to the president make the president hold that letter? Can he make him receive it? Can he make him open it? Can he make him read it? And can he make him respond to it? He cannot. The beggar does not have the authority to go to the king and say, do this for me. All he can do is plead. That's what the psalmist does in the first verse. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. And he condescended to my need, and he responded. He heard, and he responded. This is like Naomi in the book of Ruth. And she says, I have no husband. I have no provision. I have no inheritance. I have no food, and I have no house. What will I do? I'm completely undone unless the Lord would rescue me. This is the mercy of the God to condescend to the needs of man. And if you cry out to the Lord, truly recognizing this need, he will hear you. Trust the Lord to keep his promises that he hears prayer because he does and he loves to, answers, uh, to answer the prayers of his saints. But as we look at this, look at the second thing that we're going to uh, go into today, which is what is required of a man to love the Lord. A man must love what is true about God. So we said the Lord condescends. That's true about God. We said that the Lord hears prayer. That's true about God. If you say, I love the Lord, but he doesn't always hear me, 
That's not true. But if you say, I love the Lord because he hears me, that's true, and that's worthy of praise. Think about this. If a man has an anniversary coming up, maybe he walks into a coffee shop, you start talking to him, and you say, oh, how's it going? He says, oh, it's my anniversary with my wife this week. And you ask the natural question, are you doing anything to celebrate? And he smiles, and he grins, and he looks at you, and he says, oh, yeah. And you say, what? And he pulls two tickets out of his pocket, and he says, monster truck rally, right? <laughs> and so you might, you know, generously ask, well, does your wife like monster trucks? And he says, no, but I think she might. <laughs> you know where that's going, right? It's not a demonstration that he knows, and therefore, based on what he knows, loves his wife as well as he could. But what about the man who meets his wife, and maybe they, uh, you know, they meet in a barn in the countryside, and that barn's going to get torn down. And he decides, uh, in remembrance of knowing what his wife values, that he goes and gets that reclaimed wood, and he builds something for her, a chair or a stool. And he says, I know that this time was important to you, and it's important to me. It's a time when I knew something about someone that I love, and this is me pointing back to that. That is what it is to pray something true about God. Look at verse 5 in the psalm. It says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. We talked about the grace of God. He condescends. That's gracious. He does for us what we can't do for, for ourselves. We talked about the mercy of God, that he meets us in our need that he gives to us when we can't require it of him. But what about righteousness? What about the righteousness of God? In a nutshell, the righteousness of God is legal perfection, moral legal perfection. There is no error. There is no flaw. There is no unholiness. There is nothing wrong about God. He is always right, always good, always worth adoring. But then we look at ourselves and our need. In the comparison, it should make us weep. It should make us cry in our need. It should make us say, how unworthy am I to be in the presence of such a creator? But he's redeeming, and what a privilege and a joy, and how do thanksgiving, how much I should say, I love the Lord because of my unworthiness, and yet he brought me near. This is what it means to praise what is true about God. God is righteous. But we still have that problem. We're unclean. We're unrighteous. What is done about that? God provides Christ. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the perfecter of our faith. Christ is the thing provided to us that we adore. He's the very face of God to us that we will get to see in heaven. We look forward to being in the presence of. We look forward to bowing before. And in this lifetime, we praise him and we praise him and we praise him. And when we fail to praise him, when we fail to say, praise the Lord for the salvation he's given, we repent, and then what do we do? We praise the Lord, because he accepts our repentance in Christ, our righteousness, and we praise him again. But look at verse 16. How indebted are we in our thanks to the Lord for what is true about him? How indebted are we? Verse 16 says, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. He says, I am your servant, and he calls him Lord. An interesting fact about this psalm, on a quick count, the psalmist uses the, the covenant name of the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, Lord. The Old Testament name of the promise-keeping, promise-making Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, who delivers his people, who solves the problem of sin, who has promised Messiah. 17 times in 19 verses, he says, Lord, Lord, Lord. 
You are the God of the Old Testament, the one who made me, the one to whom I owe my allegiance and my life and whatever I can author and that offer. And that's what he says in verse 12. He says, what can I render to this God? He offers himself, the only thing he has and all of him. Because for a God who meets the total need, you must offer the total of what you have, which is your very life to the Lord. And that's what, that which he calls you to. But it's not just that you're a servant. See, a lot of people don't want to hear that they're servants. They think that when they're freed in Christ, they're free to do whatever they want. There's a technical name for that. It's called antinomianism. It means that because you're in Christ, you can now go off the rails and do whatever you want, and the blood of Christ has paid for it. No, if you love the Lord, you praise him and you obey him, and you love what is true about him. And what is true about God is laid out in the Ten Commandments that we read this morning. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy. Thou shalt not commit adultery. To know those things and to love them and to be made able to keep them is to love the Lord in response to him loving us. That is amazing and wonderful. If you have nothing else to praise the Lord for, if you don't have a scripture that comes to mind in the morning when you wake up, praise the Lord that he is righteous and he makes you able to obey his righteousness. Not perfectly, in this lifetime, but one day perfectly glorified as Christ is glorified. That is the future that we are heading to as Christians and what we in some ways enjoy right now in this very moment. In Psalm 16, uh, 116, verse 16, when he says, I'm your servant, I'm a servant, the son of your maidservant, what he's actually saying is I'm a double servant because when my mother or when my parents were servants to you, there were certain benefits promised to me as a child of believing parents. And we don't need to get into all of that today. We don't need to unpack it. That's a sermon for Aaron for another day. But the gist is this. He's saying, I'm a double servant. He's saying, I'm a servant because of what the Lord has done. But he's also saying, if I'm obedient to my parents, if I'm obeying what they've taught me, if I was raised in a household of God, if I enjoyed that privilege, I am doubly responsible for what I know because of the knowledge that's been given to me, because of the faith that's been demonstrated to me. I am doubly obligated to God for all the grace he's shown me, for my upbringing, as well as for the salvation he provided to me at a given moment in time. I'm a double servant. And then he says, you have loosed my bonds. He's not loosed into nothingness. He's not loosed into doing whatever he wants. He's loosed into asking God, what would you have me do? And the most amazing thing is God says, I have loosed you into my family. He's taken away from one master and under the leadership of another master, a good master, a loving master, away from a liar and to a truth teller. And when God provides that, you get to come here on a Sunday morning and sit beside others and open the scriptures with others who can also say, I love the Lord. And you get to raise your voices in hymns and songs. And you get to reflect on what's true about God and you get to bow your hearts before him. You get to partake in the Lord's Supper. You get to watch baptisms. You get to watch weddings and you get to watch funerals where the, the truth of God is proclaimed. God has loosed our bonds so we might belong to him in Christ and be in this family of God together. A great family. A family so large that no number can count. When we get to eternity, we will not be able to number the amount of people that God has saved unto himself, that he has called to be near, that we'll be able to praise him for who he truly is. So we said that for a man to love God, God must first love him. We said for a man to love God, that he has to love what's true about God. But lastly, for a man to love God, he must confess his love for God. Here's a question for you. 
What about a mute man? Can a mute man confess a love for God? You see, the Psalms are poetic. They're not meant to be read woodenly. And the truth about God is something that's it's lived out as well as spoken. You should speak your love for God. You should tell others about your love for God. But a blind, uh, a, a mute man, he can confess his love for God. He can say, I love the Lord by being present whenever the worship is happening. He can love the Lord by providing to his family. He can love the Lord for praying in his heart of hearts and giving thanks to the Lord. A mute man can praise the Lord. But we see that the, the praise of this psalmist is audible. It is verbal. What does he say in verse 14 and verses 18 and 19? In verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. What vow did he make? The vow that he made is, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will love the Lord for the entirety of my life. And he says, I'm going to fulfill that vow in the witness of the people who will value it. He's not going to throw his pearls before swine. Now what he's saying, he's not saying that he's not going to evangelize. He's not saying that he's not going to tell people who don't know about Christ what Christ has done. But he's saying that those who are going to understand and they're going to praise when I praise and they're going to thank the Lord when I thank the Lord and they have their hearts broken open afresh when they hear of the saving work that Christ has done. That is the people of God, that which God has loosed us into the presence of from our bonds. What a privilege. What a privilege. Think of it this way. When a man proposes to a woman, he does it in a restaurant, and then she says yes, what's the first thing that he does? He might hug her, you know, they might kiss or whatever, but eventually he's going to say, she said yes, she said yes, right? He doesn't stand up and say, uh, <laughs> he doesn't stand up and say, I bought a wife, he doesn't stand up and say, I obligated her to me, he stands up and says, she said yes, she willingly agreed to this relationship, she willingly said yes, but he can't contain it. How wonderful that is. That should be the, the wellspring of your heart when you think about the gospel. God said, yes. He actually chose me. He made a proposal to me that was irresistible, that I couldn't deny, that was so good, I can't believe he actually made it. Some people actually think the gospel is too good to be true. And what a shame that they don't accept it, that their heart's desire is not to say yes right away and to proclaim to the Lord, he chose me. And for him to say, you said yes. For eternity that's amazing and how long is this praise how long is this benefit in verse 2 he says therefore I will call on him as long as I live as long as I live how long will a Christian live on this earth till he dies it's a safe answer but then for eternity I will praise the Lord for as long as I live I will love him for as long as I live Begin to be in the habit of praising and thanking the Lord now for the love that he's shown you so you might love him. And in verse 9 it says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's a Hebrew way of saying I'm going to live in holiness in light of what God has done. I'm going to put away the things of my old life, the dead man, the old man, the man I used to be. And I'm going to start praising the Lord. I'm going to start being generous because the Lord is generous. I'm going to start loving the word of God because God has given it to me to love. And it's a reflection of who he truly is. I'm going to start making sacrifices for my family. And, and I'm going to start spending time with my children in patience, but correcting them and rebuking them so they might know the Lord. This is what it means to walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Just two more small notes. In verses 10 and 11, the psalmist says, I believed, 
even when I spoke, even when I spoke truth about God, even when I knew the truth in my heart, I doubted and I said, I am greatly, greatly afflicted. I'm so overwhelmed with my suffering. Can it really be true? Is what I thought was true about God still really true in the time of my trial? This is a caution for you to remember that trials will come and doubts will come in the Christian life. And we must return to the essential truths of what God has done. He has saved me. He has saved me. I'm sure that he has saved me. I love him. I couldn't love him if he hasn't saved me. He has saved me. And when I doubt, I must say I love the Lord until I remember why I love the Lord. And then in verse 11 as well, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. I overreacted. I went off the rails. I was so fearful that the Lord wasn't going to provide that I did something rash. I did something unsensible. I did something that is against the scriptures. I didn't think that the Lord was uh, going to help me keep my job, so I took out a loan just to keep my house. And now I have my job, and I have a second loan. Why did I do that? Because I didn't believe that the Lord would provide. And there are wise times to make distinct financial decisions and other things just like that in life. But are you praying to the Lord and trusting in his provision and trusting that what he brings into your life as a challenge so you will remember your need of him is meant to sanctify you and remember why you love the Lord. And then lastly, in Psalm uh, 116, verse 15, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It was no small obstacle that the psalmist faced. It was real death, real peril, a real diagnosis. You have three months to live. Get your affairs in order. It was a real issue of your business is going under. What are you going to do? This is real heartache. It's, it's the issue of your child is not walking with the Lord. They don't seem to have a faith of their own. What will you do? You can do nothing. It's as bad as it can get. But you can call it to the Lord and trust that he hears prayer and he'll answer prayer. And we go to him with thanks and with trust, and with praise. And we praise him, and we praise him until he has done all that he means to accomplish. And that is the best for the Christian, and it's the most right way to praise the Lord. And in light of this, in one of the Sunday schools that was happening, I know there was a children's Sunday school, but uh, in the Sunday school that Jim was leading, uh, talking about Calvinism, and they mentioned some of the martyrs, and they mentioned Calvin, and they mentioned the Huguenots, and they mentioned men who have died for the faith, men who have suffered tremendous deaths for the, faith, for the faith. You may not be called to the stake. You may not be executed for the faith. But do you love the Lord enough that you would give your whole and total life to him? Follow the examples of the saint. I pray that you don't have to face that end. But I pray that you would live and walk with the Lord and faithful testament to what Christ has done. And I'm just going to read a couple lines here from uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs in light of that. There were two gentlemen in 1555. One of, them, one of their names was Dr. Ridley, and the other one's name was Hugh Latimer. And these were men of high-ranking status within the church, and the church had gone from being Protestant and proclaiming what was truly true about God, what was uh, truth that God should be praised for, and the church had shifted back to Roman Catholicism. Queen Mary had taken over Bloody Mary. She was beginning to persecute the Christians of the time, challenging that which the Bible really teaches, trying to take salvation itself from the teaching of the scriptures, trying to keep men from proclaiming truth so people might know Christ their Savior. And this is what they say as they're bound and put on stacks of wood and the fires are beginning to be lit. Dr. Ridley says, Well, so long as there is breath in my body while the fires are being lit, I will never deny my Lord Christ in his known truth. God's will be done in me. 
and he did burn. And again, later, before the flames actually rose high enough to take him, it said, he held out his right hand, and he said, O Heavenly Father, I give unto unto thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to profess thee, even unto death. And last, a word from Hugh Latimer, being burned with him. He said to Dr. Ridley, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And the light of that candle is the truth of Scripture proclaiming what Christ has done until the day that Christ returns. And the last way that we get to reflect on this truth of the salvation of Christ is by partaking in the Lord's Supper, where we reflect upon that which is provided to us by the blood of Christ applied by the Spirit, the body broken of Christ applied by the Spirit, so that we might enjoy these privileges and be reminded of them. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we thank you for Christ and the sweetness which he is that you have provided to us. You came to us. You took on flesh. Lord, the second person of the Trinity, how wonderful he is and how wonderful the Trinity's plan of salvation that we would get to enjoy you forever. Lord, thank you for doing that which we could not do for ourselves. Lord, I pray your name would be praised not just today but for the rest of the week until we meet again in Bible studies and in the opening of scriptures. And on the next Lord's Day, we'll repraise your name all again together, loosed into the freedom of your family. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.